Chapter 5. A Treasure of Spiders One hot, dreamy afternoon, when everything except the shouting cicadas seemed to be asleep, Roger and I set out to see how far we could climb over the hills before dark. We made our way up through the olive grove, striped and dappled with white sunlight, where the air was hot and still, and eventually we clambered above the trees and out onto a bare, rocky peak, where we sat down for a rest. The island dozed below us, shimmering like a water picture in the heat haze. Grey-green olives, black cypresses, multicoloured rocks of the seacoast, and the sea smooth and opalescent, kingfisher blue, jade green, with here and there a pleat or two in its sleek surface where it curved around a rocky, olive-tangled promontory. Directly below us was a small bay with a crescent-shaped rim of white sand, a bay so shallow and with a floor of such dazzling sand that the water was a pale blue, almost white. I was sweaty after the ascent, and Roger sat with flopping tongue and froth-flecked whiskers. We decided that we would not climb the hills after all, we would go for a bathe instead. So we hurried down the hillside until we reached the little bay, empty, silent, asleep under the brilliant shower of sunlight. We sat in the warm, shallow waters drowsily, and I delved in the sand around me. Occasionally I found a smooth pebble or a piece of bottle which had been rubbed and licked by the sea until it was like a, an astonishing jewel, green and translucent. These finds I handed to Roger, who sat watching me. He, not certain what I expected him to do, but not wishing to offend me, took them delicately in his mouth. Then, when he thought I was not looking, he would drop them back into the water and sigh deeply. Later, I lay on a rock to dry while Roger sneezed and clopped his way along the shallows in an attempt to catch one of the blue-finned blue blennies with their pouting, vacant faces, which flipped from rock to rock with the speed of swallows. Breathing heavily and staring down into the clear water, Roger followed them, a look of intense concentration on his face. When I was dry, I put on my shorts and shirt and called to Roger. He came reluctantly, with many a backward glance at the blennies, which still flicked across the sandy sun-ringed floor of the bay. Coming as close to me as possible, he shook himself vigorously, showering me with water from his curly coat. After the swim, my body felt heavy and relaxed, and my skin as though it was covered with a silky crust of salt. Slowly and dreamily we made our way onto the road. Discovering that I was hungry, I wondered which was the nearest cottage where I could get something to eat. I stood kicking up puffs of wine, fine white dust from the road as I considered this problem. If I went to see Leonora, who undoubtedly lived the nearest, she would give me figs and bread, but she would also insist on giving me the latest bulletin on her daughter's state of health. Her daughter was a husky-voiced virago with a cast in one eye, whom I cordially disliked, so I had no interest in her health. I decided not to go to Leonora. It was a pity, for she had the best fig tree for miles around, but there was a limit to what I could endure for the sake of black figs. If I went to see Taki, the fisherman, he would be having his siesta, and would merely shout, Go away, little corn top, from the depths of his tightly shuttered house. Chris Taki and his family would probably be about, but in return for food they would expect me to answer a lot of tedious questions. Was England bigger than Corfu? How many people lived there? Were they all lords? What was the train like? Did trees grow in England? And so on, interminably. If it had been morning, I could have cut through the fields and vineyards, and before reaching home, I would have fed well on contributions from various of my friends on the way, 
olives, bread, grapes, figs, ending perhaps with a short detour that would take me through Philomena's fields, where I could be sure of ending my snack with a crisp pink slice of watermelon, cold as ice. But now it was siesta time, and most of the peasants were asleep in their houses behind tightly closed doors and shutters. It was a difficult problem, and while I thought about it, the pangs of hunger grew, and I kicked more energetically at the dusty road until Roger sneezed protestingly and gave me an injured look. Suddenly I had an idea. Just over the hill lived Yanni, the old shepherd, and his wife in a minute sparkling white cottage. Yanni, I knew, had a siesta in front of his house in the shade of his grapevine, and if I made enough noise approaching the house, he would wake up. Once awake, it was certain that he would offer me hospitality. There was not a single peasant house you could visit and come empty away. Cheered by this thought, I set off up the stony meandering pathway created by the pattering hooves of Yanni's goats over the brow of the hill and into the valley where the red roof of the shepherd's house gleamed among the giant olive trunks. When I judged I was close enough, I stopped and threw a stone for Roger to retrieve. This was one of Roger's favourite pastimes, but once having started it, you had to continue, or else he would stand in front of you and bark hideously until you repeated the performance in sheer desperation. He retrieved the stone, dropped it at my feet, and backed away expectantly. Ears cocked, eyes gleaming, muscles taut and ready for action. I ignored both him and the stone. He looked faintly surprised. He examined the stone carefully and then looked at me again. I whistled a short tune and looked up into the sky. Roger gave an experimental yap. Then, seeing I still took no notice, he folded it up with a volley of deep, rich barks that echoed among the olives. I let him bark for about five minutes. By this time, I felt sure Yanni must be aware of our arrival. Then I threw the stone for Roger, and as he fled after it joyfully, I made my way round to the front of the house. The old shepherd, as I expected, was in the tattered shade of the vine that sprawled on its iron trellis work above my head, but to my intense annoyance he had not woken up. He was sprawling in a plain deal chair which was tilted back against the wall at a dangerous angle. His arms dangled limply, his legs were spread out, and his magnificent moustache, orange and white with nicotine and age, lifted and trembled with his snores, like some strange seaweed that is raised and lowered by a gentle swell. The thick fingers of his stumpy hands twitched as he slept, and I could see the thick ribbed yellow nails like flakes cut from a tallow candle. His brown face wrinkled and furrowed as the bark of a pine was expressionless, the eyes tightly shut. I stared at him, trying to will him to wake up, but with no result. It was not etiquette for me to wake him, and I was debating whether it would be worth while waiting until he awoke naturally, or whether it would be better to go and be bored by Leonora, when Roger came in search of me, bustling around the side of the house, ears pricked, tongue drooping. He saw me, wagged his tail in brief greeting, and glanced round with the air of a visitor who knows he is welcome. Suddenly, he froze. His moustache bristled, and he started to walk forward slowly, stiff-legged and quivering. He had seen something that I had failed to observe. Curled up under Yanni's tilted chair sat a large, lanky, grey cat, who was watching us with insolent green eyes. Before I could reach out and grab him, Roger had pounced. The cat, in a lithe movement that argued long practice, fled like a skimming stone to where the gnarled grapevine twisted drunkenly around the trellis and shot up it with a scutter of sharp claws. 
Crouched among the bunches of white grapes, she stared down at Roger and spat delicately. Roger, frustrated and angry, threw back his head and barked threats and insults. Yanni's eyes flew open, his chair rocked, and his arms flailed violently in an effort to keep his balance. The chair teetered uncertainly, and then settled onto all four legs with a thud. Spray, Saint Spirit, don't save me, he implored loudly. God have mercy! He glared around, his moustache quivering, to find the cause of the uproar, and saw me sitting demurely on the wall. I greeted him sweetly and politely, as though nothing had happened, and asked if he had slept well. He rose to his feet, grinning, and scratched his stomach vigorously. Ah, it's you making enough noise to split my head. Your health, your health. Sit down, little lord, he said, dusting off his chair and placing it for me. It's good to see you. You will eat with me and have a drink, perhaps. It's a very hot afternoon, very hot. Hot enough to melt a bottle. He stretched, and yawning loudly, displayed gums as innocent of teeth as a baby's. Then, turning towards the house, he roared, Aphrodite! Aphrodite! Wake, woman! Foreigners have come! The little lord is sitting with me! Bring food, you hear? I heard! I heard! came a muffled voice from behind the shutters. Yanni grunted, wiped his moustache, and made his way to the nearest olive tree, and retired discreetly behind it. He reappeared, doing up his trousers and yawning, and came over to sit on the wall near me. Today I should have taken my goats to Gastore, but it was too hot, much too hot. In the hills the rocks will be so hot you could light a cigarette from them. So I went instead and tasted Tucky's new white wine. Spirit on, what a wine! Like the blood of a dragon and as smooth as a fish. What a wine! When I came back the air was full of sleep, so here I am. He sighed deeply, but impenitently, and fumbled in his pocket for his battered tin of tobacco and thin grey cigarette papers. His brown calloused hand cupped to catch the little pile of golden leaf, and the fingers of his other hand tugged and pulled at it gently. He rolled the cigarette swiftly, nipped the tobacco that dangled from the ends, and replaced it in the tin, and then lit his smoke with the age of a huge tin lighter from which a wick curled like an angry snake. He puffed reflectively for a moment, pulled a shred of tobacco off his moustache, and reached into his pocket again. Here, you are interested in the little ones of God. Look at this that I caught this morning. Crouching under a rock like the devil, he said, pulling from his pocket a tiny bottle, firmly corked and filled with golden olive oil. A fine one, this, a fighter, the only fighter I know who can do damage with his backside. The bottle, filled to the brim with oil, looked as though it were made of pale amber, and enshrined in the centre, held suspended by the thickness of the oil, was a small chocolate-brown scorpion, his tail curved like a scimitar over his back. He was quite dead, suffocated by the glutinous grave. Around his corpse was a faint wisp of discoloration, like a mist in the golden oil. See that? said Yanni. That's the poison. He was full, that one. I asked curiously why it was necessary to put the scorpion in oil. Yanni chuckled richly and wiped his moustache. You do not know, little lord, though you spend all your time on your stomach catching these things, eh? he said, greatly amused. Well, I will tell you. You never know it may be of use to you. First, you catch the scorpion, you catch him alive, and catch him as gently as a falling feather. Then you put him alive, mark you, alive, in a bottle of oil. Let him simmer. Let him die in it. Let the sweet oil soak up the poison. Then... 
should you ever be stung by one of his brothers, and Saint Spiridon protect you from that, you must rub the place with that oil. That will cure the sting for you so that it is of no more discomfort than the prick of a thorn. While I digested this curious information, Aphrodite appeared from the house, her wrinkled face as red as a pomegranate seed, bearing a tin tray on which was a bottle of wine, a jug of water, and a plate with bread, olives, and figs on it. Yanni and I drank the wine, watered to a delicate pale pink, and ate the food in silence. In spite of his toothless gums, Yanni tore large pieces of the bread off and champed them hungrily, swallowing great lumps that made his wrinkled throat swell. When we'd finished, he sat back, wiped his moustache carefully, and took up the conversation again as if there had been no pause. I knew a man once, a shepherd like myself, who had been to a fiesta in a distant village. On the way back, as his stomach was warm with wine, he decided to have a sleep, so he found a spot beneath some myrtles. But while he slept, a scorpion crept out from under the leaves and crawled into his ear, and when he awoke, it stung him. Yanni paused at this psychological moment to spit over the wall and roll, roll himself another cigarette. Yes, he sighed at last. It was very sad. One so young, the tiny scorpion stung him in the ear, foot like that. The poor fellow flung himself about in his agony, ran screaming through the olives, tailing at his head. Ah, it was dreadful. There was no one to hear his cries and help him, no one at all. In terrible pain, he started to run for the village, but... He never reached it. He fell down dead, down there in the valley, not far from the road. We found him the next morning when we were going through the fields. What a sight, what a sight. With that one little bite, his head had swollen up as though his brains were pregnant. And he was dead, quite dead. <sighs> Yanni sighed deeply and lugubriously, twirling the little bottle of oil in his fingers. That is why, he went on. I never go up into the hills and sleep. And in case I should perhaps share some wine with a friend and forget the danger, I always carry a scorpion bottle with me. The talk drifted to other and equally absorbing topics. And after an hour or so, I rose, dusted the crumbs off my lap, thanked the old man and his wife for their hospitality, accepted a bunch of grapes as a parting present and set off towards home. Roger walked close to me, his eyes fixed on my pocket, for he had noticed the grapes. At length, finding an olive grove, dark and cool with the long shadows of evening, we sat down by a mossy bank and shared the fruit. Roger ate his whole, pips and all. I spat out my pips into a little circle around me and imagined with satisfaction the flourishing vineyard that would grow up on that spot. When the grapes were finished, I rolled over onto my stomach and with my chin in my hands, examined the bank behind me. A tiny green grasshopper with a long melancholy face sat twitching his hind legs nervously. A fragile snail sat on a moss sprig, meditating and waiting for the evening dew. A plump scarlet mite the size of a match head struggled like a tubby huntsman through the forest of moss. It was a microscopic world full of fascinating life. As I watched the mite making his slow progress, I noticed a curious thing. Here and there, on the plush, green surface of the moss were scattered faint circular marks, each the size of a shilling. So faint were they that it was only from certain angles that they were noticeable at all. They reminded me of a full moon seen behind thick clouds, 
a faint circle that seemed to shift and change. I wondered idly what could have made them. They were too irregular, too scattered to be the prints of some beast, and what was it that would walk up an almost vertical bank in such a haphazard manner? Perhaps they were, besides, they were not like imprints. I prodded the edge of one of these circles with a piece of grass. It remained unmoved. I began to think the mark was caused by some curious way in which the moss grew. I probed again, more vigorously, and suddenly my stomach gave a clutch of tremendous excitement. It was as though my grass stalk had found a hidden spring, for the whole circle lifted up like a trap door. As I stared, I saw to my amazement that it was in fact a trap door, lined with silk, and with a neatly bevelled edge that fitted snugly into the mouth of the silk-lined shaft it concealed. The edge of the door was fastened to the lip of the tunnel by a small flap of silk that acted as a hinge. I gazed at this magnificent piece of workmanship and wondered what on earth could have made it. Peering down the silken tunnel, I could see nothing. I poked my grass stalk down, but there was no response. For a long time, I sat staring at this fantastic home, trying to decide what sort of beast had made it. I thought that it might be a wasp of some sort, but had never heard of a wasp that fitted its nest with secret doors. I felt that I must get to the bottom of this problem immediately. I would go down and ask George if he knew what this mysterious beast was. Calling Roger who was busily trying to uproot an olive tree, I set off at a brisk trot. I arrived at George's villa out of breath, bursting with suppressed excitement, gave a perfunctory knock at the door and dashed in. Only then did I realise he had company. Seated in a chair near him was a figure which at first glance I decided must be George's brother, for he also wore a beard. He was, however, in contrast to George, immaculately dressed, in a grey flannel suit with waistcoat, a spotless white shirt, a tasteful but sombre tie, and large, solid, highly polished boots. I paused on the threshold, embarrassed, while George surveyed me sardonically. Good evening, he greeted me. From the joyful speed of your entry, I take it that you have not come for a little extra tuition. I apologised for the intrusion, and then told George about the curious nests I had found. Thank heavens you're here, Theodore, he said to his bearded companion. I shall now be able to hand the problem over to expert hands. Hardly an expert, mumbled the man called Theodore, deprecatingly. Jerry, this is Dr. Theodore Stephanides, said George. He is an expert on practically everything you care to mention. And what you don't mention, he does. He, like you, is an eccentric nature lover. Theodore, this is Jerry Durrell. I said, how do you do, politely. But to my surprise, the bearded man rose to his feet, stepped briskly across the room, and held out a large white hand. Very pleased to meet you, he said, apparently addressing his beard, and gave me a quick, shy glance from twinkling blue eyes. I shook his hand and said I was very pleased to meet him too. Then we stood in awkward silence while George watched us, grinning. Well, Theodore, he said at last, and what do you think produced these strange secret passages? Theodore clasped his hands behind his back, lifted himself onto his toes several times, his boots squeaking protestingly, and gravely considered the floor. Well, ah, uh, he said. 
his words coming slowly and meticulously. It sounds to me as though they might be the burrows of the uh, trapdoor spider. <coughs> uh, it is a species which is quite common here in Corfu. That, that is to say, when I say common, I suppose I have found some 30 or uh, 40 specimens uh, during the time I've been here. Ah, said George. Trapdoor spiders, eh? Uh, yes, said Theodore. I feel that it's more than probable that that is what they are. However, um, I may, may be mistaken. He rose and fell on his toes, squeaking gently, and then he shot me a keen glance. Perhaps if uh, they are not too far away, we could go and verify it, he suggested tentatively. I, I mean to say, uh, if you have uh, nothing better to do and it's not too far. His voice trailed away on a faintly interrogative note. I said that they were only just up the hill, not really far. Um said Theodore. Don't let him drag you about all over the place, Theodore, said George. You don't want to be galloped about the countryside. No, 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 not at all, said, said Theodore. Oh, I was just about to leave, uh, and I can easily walk that way back. It's a, quite a simple matter for me to um, uh, cut down through the olive groves and, and reach Canoni. He picked up a neat grey homburg and placed it squarely on his head. At the door, he held out his hand and shook George's briefly. Thank you for a delightful tea, he said, and stumped gravely off along the path by my side. As we walked along, I studied him covertly. He had a straight, well-shaped nose, a humorous mouth lurking in the ash-blonde beard, straight, rather bushy eyebrows under which his eyes, keen but with a twinkle in them and laughter wrinkles at the corners, surveyed the world. He strode along energetically, humming to himself. When we came to a ditch full of stagnant water, he stopped for a moment and stared down into it, his beard bristling. Hum, he said conversationally. Daphnia Magna. He rasped at his beard with his thumb and then set off down the path again. Unfortunately, he said to me, I was coming out to see some people, uh, friends of mine, <clears throat> and so I did not bring my collecting bag with me. It, it is a pity, for that ditch might have contained something. When we branched off the fairly smooth path we had been travelling along and started up the stony goat track, I expected some sort of protest, but Theodore strode behind me with unbated vigour still humming. At length, we came to the gloomy olive grove, and I led Theodore to the bank and pointed out the mysterious trapdoor. He peered down at it. His eyes narrowed. Aha, he said. Yes, um, yes. He produced from his waistcoat pocket a tiny penknife, opened it, inserted the point of the blade delicately under the little door, and flipped it back. Um, yes, he repeated. Teniza. He peered down the tunnel, blew down it, and then let the trapdoor fall into place again. Yes, they, they are the burrows of the trapdoor spider, he said, but this one does not appear to be inhabited. Generally, the creature will hold on to the uh, <clears throat> trapdoor with, uh, with her legs or, 
or rather her claws, and she holds on with such tenacity that you have to be careful or you will damage the door trying to force it open. Um, um, yes, uh, these are the, the burrows of the females, of course. The, the male makes a similar burrow, but it, it is only half the size. I remarked that it was the most curious structure I'd seen. Ah, ah, yes, said Theodore. They are certainly very curious. A thing that always puzzles me is how the female knows when the male is approaching. I must have looked blank, for he teetered up on his toes, shot me a quick look, and went on. The spider, of course, uh, waits inside its burrow until some insect, uh, a fly or a grasshopper or something similar, chances to walk past. Uh, they can judge, it seems, whether the insect is close enough to be caught. Uh, if it is, the spider uh, uh, pops out of its hole and catches the creature. Uh, now, when the male comes in search of the female, he must walk over the moss to the trapdoor, and I have often wondered why it is that he is not uh, devoured uh, by the female in mistake. It is possible, of course, that his footsteps sound different, or he may make some sort of, you know, some sort of sound which the female recognises. We walked down the hill in silence. When we reached the place where the paths forked, I said that I must leave him. Ah, well, uh, I'll say goodbye, he said, staring at his boots. I have enjoyed meeting you. We stood in silence for a moment. Theodore was afflicted with the acute embarrassment that always seemed to overwhelm him when greeting or saying goodbye to someone. He stared hard at his boots for a moment longer, and then he held out his hand and shook mine gravely. Uh, goodbye, he said. I, uh, I expect we shall meet again. He turned and stumped off down the hill, swinging his stick, staring about him with observant eyes. I watched him out of sight, and then walked slowly in the direction of the villa, I was at once confused and amazed by Theodore. First, since he was obviously a scientist of considerable repute, and I could have told this by his beard, he was to me a person of great importance. In fact, he was the only person I had met until now who seemed to share my enthusiasm for zoology. Secondly, I was extremely flattered to find that he treated me and talked to me exactly as though I was his own age. I liked him for this as I was not talked down to my, by my family, and I took a rather a poor view of any outsider trying to do so, but Theodore not only talked to me as though I were grown up, but also as though I was as knowledgeable as he. The facts he told me about the, the trapdoor spider haunted me. The idea of the creature crouching in its silken tunnel, holding the door closed with its hooked claws, listening to the movement of the insects on the moss above. What, I wonder, did things sound like to a trapdoor spider? I could imagine that a snail would trail over the door with a noise like sticking plaster being slowly torn off. A centipede would sound like a troop of cavalry. A fly would patter in brisk spurts, followed by a pause while it washed its hands. A dull, rasping sound like a knife grinder at work. The larger beetles, I decided, would sound like steamrollers, while the smaller ones, the ladybirds and others, would probably purr over the moss like clockwork motor cars. Fascinated by this thought, I made my way back home through the darkening fields to tell my family of the new discovery and of my meeting with Theodore. I hoped to see him again, for there were many things I wanted to ask him, but I felt it would be unlikely that he would have had very much time to spare for me. I was mistaken, however, for two days later, Leslie came back from an excursion into town and handed me a small parcel. 
Met that bearded Johnny, he said laconically. You know, that scientist bloke said this was for you. Incredulously, I stared at the parcel. Surely it couldn't be for me. There must be some mistake, for a great scientist would hardly bother to send me parcels. I turned it over, and there, written on it, in neat, spidery writing, was my name. I tore off the paper as quickly as I could. Inside was a small box and a letter. My dear Jerry Durrell, I wondered after our conversation the other day if it might not assist your investigations of the local natural history to have some form of magnifying instrument. I am therefore sending you this pocket microscope in the hope that it will be of some use to you. It is, of course, not of very high magnification, but you will find it sufficient for field work. With best wishes, yours sincerely, Theo Stephanides. P.S. If you have nothing better to do on Thursday, perhaps you would care to come to tea, and then I could show you some of my microscope slides. <laughs>